Chapter 7 of Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. Chapter 7 Mandricardo and Doralis. The starting point of the story of Mandricardo and Doralis, as told by the divine poet, is in an adventure which befell Orlando a little time before he fell into his madness. When he had been aroused by the evil dream to go in search of Angelica, he had left Paris without a word to anyone, not even to his most faithful friend Brandimarte, and he had taken with him not a single squire or attendant, and partly for disguise, and partly to match his sorrowful thoughts, he had put on black armour, and in place of his famous shield, with the red and white quarterings, known to all men, he took a black shield with no device, and over his armour he wore a plain surcoat. And many months he had wandered, and he had gone through many adventures whilst the Saracens besieged Charlemagne in Paris. At length, Agramant, the Saracen leader, determined to deliver a grand assault on the city, and he summoned from far and near all his allies. But when he came to review his forces, before the grand assault, there were missing the pennons of the king of Norizia and of the king of Trebizond, and whilst King Agramant was weighing the cause of their absence, there was brought to him a squire of the king of Tremezin, and he told Agramant that the two kings had been slain, and their forces slaughtered and scattered by a single unknown knight, as easily as a flock of sheep by a wolf. Now the knight was Orlando, but none knew it by reason of his black armour and plain shield. A few days before these events there had arrived in the camp of the Saracens a warrior of great renown by name Mandricardo. He was the son of Agrican, the king of Tartary, who had besieged Angelica in Albraca, and had been slain in combat by Orlando. And after Mandricardo had succeeded his father in the kingdom, he had wasted his people in war, slaying with his own hand any that showed the least failing in courage. And he had been reproached by a holy man of his race and faith, because he wasted his people, and forgot to avenge his own father. Therefore, Mandricardo, smitten by remorse, had set out to France to kill Orlando. And for another reason also he desired to meet Orlando in battle, namely, to win from him Durindana, the great sword of Hector of Troy. For the Tartar king, in the most famous of all his adventures, had gained possession of all the arms of Hector, save only the sword. And when he had won the armour, he had been made to take an oath to use no weapon but his lance until he had gained this sword in battle from Orlando. And Mandricardo was chafing with restless anger in the camp of Agramant, because he could get no tidings of his enemy Orlando, when the tale was brought of the slaughter wrought by the unknown Black Knight. And Mandricardo was enraged to think any Christian should have won so great renown and he resolved to set out and find the black knight. And he told no one of his purpose, 
fearing that some other might seek to share in the glory of slaying this unknown marvel. And according to his oath he took only his lance, and he set out glorying in his strength and in the shining armour of the mighty Hector. The arms of Hector were the most glorious ever created, bedecked with gold and rubies, pearls and emeralds. The shield was azure, and set in the midst was a silver eagle, and most glorious of all was the helmet. On the crest a golden lion, and beneath the crest a wreath of gold, and in the centre of it a great carbuncle that glowed with a ruddy light, and gleamed like a burning fire in the darkness. And on his coming King Marsilio had given to the Tartar king a beautiful horse, a bay with black feet and mane, and of a famous race. Mandricardo mounted this horse, and, resplendent in the arms of Hector, he spurred towards the scene of the slaughter, and vowed never to return to the camp until he had slain the black knight. At length he came to this strange battlefield, and as he looked on the heaps of slain, his heart was torn with envy to see such numbers slain by one arm, and he cursed his fate that had brought him too late to the carnage. That day and half the next he sought eagerly for the black knight, but found him not. At last he came to a green meadow set in a loop of a deep stream and shaded with noble trees. And at the entrance to the meadow, where the stream had almost made an island of it, he found a numerous band of armed men. And the Tartar, riding up, asked the leader of the band what chief had sent so strong a force, and what was the treasure it was sent to guard. And the leader, struck by the jewelled arms and by the fierce bearing of Mandricardo, answered with courtesy, We have been sent to convoy the daughter of Stordilano, the king of Granada, whom he has promised in marriage to Rodomont, the king of Algiers. And even now we are taking the princess to the king her father, who is encamped with Agramant. And as soon as the cool of the evening has come, and the Chicale have ceased their grating, we shall set forth, and in the meanwhile the princess rests in the shade. But the Tartar, who feared nothing in earth or heaven, resolved to try the faith and courage of the guard, and with slow insolence said, I would fain see the lady, lead me to her, or bring her hither to me. My haste in another matter forbids delay. What madness is this? replied the Granada captain, and he said no more, for on the instant the Tartar rode upon him and drove his lance through his steel cuirass and sent him dead to earth. Who dares dispute with me? he cried, and pressed on the throng of guards with his lance. And when the lance was broken, with the truncheon of it he hammered to death all that came within reach, even as Samson hammered the Philistines with the jawbone. And when he had killed or maimed two-thirds of the company, the rest fled. When Mandricardo had cleared the passage into the meadow with this great slaughter, he advanced on the track of a newly trodden path into the meadow, and as he went forward he heard the cries of maidens in fear, and at last he came to the princess of Granada, Duralis. She was leaning against the trunk of an old ash, weeping for the slain, fearful for herself, and fainting with anxiety. And when she saw coming near to her the Tartar king, with fierce visage, 
and with armour all stained with blood, and with the terrible truncheon of the lance in his hand, she gave way to sheer terror, and her attendants huddled round her shrieking, sage matrons and beautiful damsels and young pages, versed only in the courteous fighting of the tournament. As soon as the Tartar looked on the face of Duralis, who was the most famous in that age of all the beauties of Spain, he was enraptured, for he was as quick in love as in war, and he thought to himself how lovely she looked through her tears, and how much more lovely she would look in her smiles, and he set himself to make her change from fear to joy. And with gentle courtesy he placed the princess on her milk-white palfrey, and he said to the weeping train of matrons and damsels and pages, Farewell! Henceforth your lady shall find in me alone her guardian, her squire, her lord, her attendant, and whatsoever she desires. And thereupon he left them, and they lamented to one another that her father or her betrothed had not been there to defend their mistress from this barbarian, and they wondered what vengeance they would take when they heard of the disaster. And forthwith a dwarf, who was much prized by the princess, and was often her messenger, was sent on a swift horse to tell the news to Rodomond. And at this very time the grand assault on Paris was being delivered, and Rodomond was raging like an unconquerable dragon through the city, as is told in its place by the divine poet. As soon as Mandricardo had gotten possession of Duralis, he began to forget his quest of the Black Knight, and he turned his youthful thoughts away from war, and he displayed wonderful skill in the art of love, and even his feigning seemed fired with passion. To begin with, he told Duralis that in the middle of Asia he had heard of her beauty, and for her sake alone had he left his kingdom, determined to win for himself the most beautiful woman on the earth. Then he told her of his high descent, his wealth, and his power, and ended with the pious boast that in empire he submitted to God only. And little by little the warrior conquered the fears of the maiden, and she began to answer him with courtesy. And as they rode along the forest ways all alone, she looked sometimes in his face, and showed in her eyes the beginning of young desire, and the heart of the Tartar leaped with joy. And as they journeyed, little by little, they fell into the gaiety of love, and just as the sun was setting, they came near a village where the peasants were holding a festival, with dances and piping and feasting. And the chief of the herdsmen welcomed the travellers with the courtesy born of good nature, and he was not abashed by the jewels in the armour of the knight, nor by the magnificent dress of the lady. And the king of the Tartars forgot his dignities and his ferocity, and the princess of Granada forgot also her father's dignities and her betrothal, and they danced and feasted with the peasants. And in the morning, sings the divine poet, they rose up as joyous as the sunshine, and they thanked their host as if he had been the lord of a great castle. Then they rode away, but not towards Paris, for Mandricardo had forgotten the grand assault on Paris, and Duralis had forgotten her father, and Rodomont, her betrothed. At length, in their pleasant wanderings, they came to a river that seemed hardly to flow at all in its quiet stillness, and so pure and bright was the water that the sands in the bed glittered in the sun, 
never was a scene more peaceful. And they had not ridden far along the banks when they came upon two noble knights and a lady resting in the cooling shade. And on the instant the scene was changed from peace to war, for the strongest and most imposing of the warriors was the Black Knight, whose quest Mandricardo had for the time forgotten in the delights of love. But the story of the fight of Mandricardo with Orlando, in the guise of the Black Knight, is told in another place, and the reader must first return to Paris and Rodomont. As recorded in the beginning of these stories, Rodomont, from whom, without a moment's thought, the Tartar king had stolen his betrothed, was of all the Saracens the most terrible, and he had shown to all the world his devotion to Duralis. War was his sport, and ruthless slaughter his delight, but to Duralis he was always the gentlest of courteous knights, and he loved her with all the passion of his gigantic strength. On his great crimson standard there was richly embroidered a lion, and in the mouth of the lion was a curb, held by the beautiful hand of a lady, and the lion was meant for Rodomont, and the hand for the hand of Duralis, a device which showed to all men the might of the lover, and the humility of his love. The armour of Rodomont was suited to the ferocity of his nature. Instead of plate and mail, he wore the scaly skin of a huge dragon that had been slain by his ancestor Nimrod when he was building the Tower of Babel and threatening to take heaven itself by storm. And this dragon skin was a palm in thickness, and no weapon could pierce it. And the sword which had been Nimrod's was so huge and weighty that since his day no man had wielded it save Rodomont himself. The grand assault delivered by all the forces under Agramant led to one of the greatest battles in the history of the world. The movements of the thousands engaged were highly involved, and the valour of the kings and chiefs on both sides gave rise to many notable feats of arms, and the divine poet tells of the single combats of the heroes as if the battlefield were only a scene in the background. The great issue of the battle was the last defence of Christendom against Mohammed. If Paris fell, all Europe would fall with it. On both sides aid had been summoned from every race and every country. And yet, on either side, there were absent from this decisive battle the mightiest leaders, who had been driven this way and that by their own passions, and in these days the personal strength and courage of the leaders was of overpowering weight compared with thousands of the common sort. Charlemagne grieved most of all for the absence of Orlando, who had left Paris secretly in pursuit of Angelica. Rinaldo had been sent to Scotland and England for new levies, and had not yet returned, though by the will of God he did return at the most critical point. Doudon had been captured by Rodomont soon after his first coming to France, and sent prisoner to Africa, and others of the paladins were absent, but most of all the loss of Orlando boded evil to the Christians. On the side of the Saracens, Agramant looked in vain for Mandricardo, who had gone away no one knew whither, and little Agramant thought that he had left the dance of death for the dance of love and Rogero was missing from the ranks of the Saracens, and it had been prophesied that the fortune of the Saracens was bound up with Rogero. The main action in the assault fell in this wise. 
the Saracens under Rodomont forced an entrance through the outer defences of the city, with a loss of thousands killed by all manner of missiles hurled from the great military engines, and by burning pitch and lime and great stones thrown from the walls. And masses of the Saracens were caught in the great fosse as in a trap, and were burned alive when the hidden mines were fired. But Rodomont himself, who was not only the strongest of the Saracens, but the fleetest and the lightest of foot in the whole host, by a mighty leap had reached the other side, and outstripping all his men, and hurling the defenders from the inner wall, unaided and alone, he had forced an entry into Paris itself, and he raged through the city like an unconquerable dragon. Drunk with blood, he spared not little children, or old men, or young maidens, in his rage he pulled down the pillars of great churches. He set fire to the palaces of the nobles and to the houses of the poor. And in those days the buildings were all of wood and a great column of smoke rose up from the burning city. In vain armed men tried to stay his onset and in vain the fugitives hurled down upon him great beams from the roofs and the bowmen shot at him sheafs of bolts and arrows. Nothing could pierce the thick skin of the dragon, and nothing could crush the man within. At last a squire came breathless to Charlemagne, who in another part defended the city walls against Agramant, and he cried to him, All is lost, in vain you defend the walls, Christendom is no more. Satan himself, the old dragon from hell, has fallen upon the city in the west, and he is slaughtering and burning worse than all the Saracens. And when Charlemagne saw the flames and the smoke fast growing, in height and volume, he knew the tale of the squire was not all born of fear, and that indeed the city was lost, unless the burning was stayed. And he called to him all the paladins within his reach, and seven of them, all notable names, answered and rushed with Charlemagne to the rescue and they found Rodomont slaying and burning, and one after another they rode at him with their lances, and smote at him with their swords. But even then the dragon-man was not wounded. But more and more of the Christians came to the attack, and by weight of numbers Rodomont was borne back, fighting step by step. And at last he came on the river, and leapt in, and in all his armour swam across and beyond the walls. And when he had reached the other bank, he brandished his sword against the foes he had left, and lamented to himself that too soon he had made his retreat. But, as it chanced, in the middle of his mad fury, he caught sight of the dwarf of Doralis, who had been sent by her attendants to tell to him the story of her capture by Mandricardo. And as soon as Rodomont saw the dwarf, he smiled upon him, and he asked how fared his dear mistress. And to him the dwarf, No longer is she my mistress, or your mistress. And then he told him how Mandricardo had slaughtered the company of guards, and had taken off the princess without a single attendant, maid or squire. And the amazement and the wrath of Rodomont were beyond the expression of words. At last he cried to the dwarf, Lead me to the spot! and the dwarf spurred his horse, and Rodomont ran, and as he ran he raged that the horse could gallop no faster, 
but much was to happen before Rodomont, in spite of all his haste, could fight with Mandricardo, and, as is his custom, the divine poet takes up another thread in his story, and leaves Rodomont running and the dwarf galloping, and sets out in order what happened to Orlando after he had killed the two pagan kings. End of chapter 7